be opening your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I wanted to uh, begin this morning by putting a, a little finer point on some of the things that we didn't talk about last week. Um, we mostly spent our time uh, last week in verses 6 through uh, 8 or 9. Um, so I want to go back up to verse 3 and look at that for just a second because there are some things in here that uh, that we probably need to we need to look at and examine as a church family. Uh, Paul says in verse three that we are obligated. What does what does your version say? Uh, mine says obligated. What does yours say? I'm sorry. Always. Okay. Anybody else? Bound ought always. Obligated. Okay. So we are obligated. We are we are. Uh, all of these things that, that you all mentioned, we are obligated always to thank God for you. Um, is that a suggestion? Does our thankfulness mirror what Paul is saying here? He says we're bound to. What does it mean to be bound to do something? I'm bound to do something. What am I bound to be thankful? I'm bound to be thankful. I'm bound to be thankful for other churches. I'm bound to be thankful to God for you. You're bound to be thankful to other other members of the church, uh, members of the of, of God's family. So how thankful? First question this morning. How thankful are you? You look at your daily life. Look at your daily interactions with others. I think that's I think that's a really good term. I think we are expected to be. This is not. This is Paul says this is not optional. This is not optional. So as you look around this church family, or as you look around the broader church family uh, around the world, um, we're expected to be thankful. Wayne? Sure. We're tied to, we're expected to be thankful. I'm expected, I'm expected to be thankful for you all, and vice versa. And sometimes events arise in our lives that we're not thankful for. Tuesday is a good example. I, I wasn't very thankful come the end of Tuesday and, and got to looking at some of the results. That, that, that didn't turn out how I wanted it to. But I have to be thankful. I have to be thankful for the bigger picture, that God is still in control. And he is the one who brings people into power and he takes people out of power. That's what the Bible tells me. So I'm to be thankful Every morning when I open my eyes and I'm not horizontal in an ICU somewhere, I'm thankful. And there are those of us in, in this audience that have had our health struggles this year. Mike and myself and others, we've had health struggles. And maybe that gives us maybe just a little bit more of a modicum of thankfulness. But he says we're obligated to be thankful. We're obligated always to thank God for you, brothers, as it is proper so there's, a, there's, there's, again, what Wayne said. There's that expectation of thankfulness. It's proper. It's to be that way. We're supposed to live thankful lives. Daryl? That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. If you, don't live in a, if you don't live in a thankful frame of mind, if you don't live in a prayerful frame of mind, if you don't live in a, in a waiting and a, pre- a prepared frame of, frame of mind, did you not even pay any attention this morning? You know, you ought to go away from here following that lesson and the, then the facts that this obligation to you to be 
to be thankful always. To go, if you go away from here without a, a different mindset, I, there's something wrong with you. We're supposed to be thankful always. But look what he says also. And your love for one another, because your faith grows abundantly and your love for one another abounds. So there are three things or four things that we need. We need to be bound to give thanks. We need to be thankful that our faith grows abundantly. And we need to be thankful that our love for one another abounds. I think if you have been around this body of believers here at Lehman any period of time at all, and I've been here 20 plus years, that this is a loving family. And, you know, the announcements that were made this morning, this, this, family, will, this family will come together. This family will pull together. I, of that, I have no doubt. We ourselves, verse 4, boast about you among God's congregations. And we talked about this at length the last couple of weeks. Because of your patient endurance and your faithfulness and all the persecutions and troubles. You know, the steadfast endurance, the patient endurance of this congregation, you know, their faith... And when you talk about faith, you talk about a faith that's either growing or it's what? It's dying. It can only be one of two things. Your faith can either be growing day by day through prayer, through interaction with other Christians, through reading your Bible. So your faith can either grow on a daily basis or your faith can just atrophy. And pretty soon you miss, a, you miss a service, and then you miss two, then you miss three, and then it just becomes, it just withers, a, your faith just withers on the vine. But Paul is thankful for them. He's thankful, for, he's thankful to other congregations for them. He said, we ourselves boast among other congregations. All of this has its root in their faithfulness. And their faithfulness in persecution and in trouble. This church was this church was unlike Lehman Avenue. This church is not. This church was troubled from the outside. This church was troubled from the inside. It had a whole list of things that Paul talked about in First Thessalonians that he's bringing back to the front in Second Thessalonians. But problems exist within the church. Temptation, um, persecution. Maybe not on a church level, but, all, but certainly on an individual level as we go out every day into the world. We're going to face persecution for what we believe. We're going to pay, face persecution for the items of worship that we engage in that are different from others. And different sometimes is labeled bad. And that's why we adhere so closely or, you know, we, we, we speak where the Bible speaks. We're silent where the Bible is silent. And we don't. We don't do those things um, that others do that are not that are not in the that in the Bible. But this church is patient. This church at Thessalonica, they're a patient group. And patience is one of those things. If you look at Galatians 5 verse 22, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Patience, love, joy, all of these things. Paul says this church at Thessalonica embodies. Their patient endurance and their faithfulness in persecution and troubles. So even though they were troubled, they were beset with troubles from, the, from outside, from the Gentile world, from the Jewish world. They were beset with troubles from within because we had those folks that were, that were saying that the Lord had already come 
And what was the deal in First Thessalonians? They were they were struggling with the, the death of loved ones, and would they would they be you know what would happen to them on on the day of the Lord? So he says in verse five that these are evidences of God's righteous judgment. These are evidences of God's righteous judgment. So as we look at their we look at their patient endurance, we look at them as they don't look to others, but they look to God. They look to Christ as their example for patience. Christ is our example for everything. He is the perfect example. And he submitted to affliction in a in a patient in a patient way. Just as we should submit to it in a similar fashion. We should cultivate our faith as a supporting mechanism for our patients. We have to cultivate, we have to cultivate that faith. And we have to meditate continually on heaven, which is the goal for all of us that are here, the goal of our patient, uh, our patience through affliction. So he then goes on to talk about rewards. And these are evidence of God's righteous judgment that you may be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. So all those who are all those who are um, all those who live in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we, we return to this point again and again. This is the part of that. This is a part of that readiness, understanding that you're going to suffer persecution, understanding that you're. Uh, that your worthiness in God's kingdom is how you suffer through this persecution. I mean, there's a whole, you read the book of Job. Talk about suffering through persecution. Talk about the model for suffering. How does that, mod, how does that model work in God's eyes? How does that model for suffering work? If you understand God's model for, this, for suffering, God, God does not tempt. That's not, a, that's not something God does. He does not tempt. We're drawn away. The Bible says we're drawn away by temptation. So it's not any of God's doing. God allows within certain parameters. If you read the book of Job, he allows within certain parameters men to be tempted. He allows the tempter. But if we resist the devil, what will he do? He'll flee from us if we resist him. Doesn't say he won't come back. Doesn't say he won't come back. He tempted Jesus. And Jesus, the perfect example, resisted the temptation. What did the devil do? He left. What does it say? For a season. Left for a season. Didn't mean he wouldn't try to come back. And he tries to come back for us. We can resist him, and he'll flee from us. He'll go off somewhere, but he's never more than an evil thought away from us in his attempt to separate us from God. Indeed, he says in verse 6, it is right for God to repay trouble to those who are troubling you and provide relief to you along with us who are troubled. How does he do that? Well, then he describes it. When the Lord appears from heaven with the angels of his power and flaming fire, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really kind of where I want to settle in today and talk about this. Because this is, this is, a, this is a question that has beset Christians down through the years, and it is actually my youngest son has has a heart. He's wrestling. He's always wrestled with this statement. Now, so we, we, I want to dive into this. I want to look at this. And I want to break it apart and talk about it. So, the verse says, verse eight, he will punish those who do not know God. So that's one class of people. 
who do not know God. And the other class is, and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it looks like it's one, it's one set of people. But if you look at it, if you break it down uh, in the Greek, it's really two set groups of people. So we have two set groups of people. And the question is, how will God judge those in the first instance? How will God judge those who've never heard the gospel? That's a hard question to answer. And I'm going to stand right here right now at five minutes after 12, and I'm going to tell you I don't have the answer to that. Because God's thoughts are not my thoughts, and they're not your thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And Abraham put it best in Genesis 18.25 when he said, Shall not the, the judge of all the world do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There are things that we know. And there are things that we do not know. These are the things, these are the things of God. So let's, let's look at this and, and, and let's talk about this for a second. So the first group that he's going to punish, he's going to punish two groups. And as Paul writes this in 51 AD, he says he will punish those who do not know God. Okay, Who are those people? Who are those people? Who are the people in Paul's day who did not know God? Well, wouldn't that be more the second group? These are people. These are people who have no who have no idea about God. They've never heard the word. They've never been exposed to the word. Who are the people that do not? In Paul's day, who would be the people that did not know God? The Gentiles, and more more even finer a finer point than that, the pagan world. The pagan world didn't want to have anything to do with with Christianity. The Gentiles were the ones that did not know God. Now there's a second group, those who obey not the gospel, who, not obey the, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now those are not the Gentiles. Who are those? The Jews. There were two classes of people that Paul was talking to when he wrote this book. He's talking about those who don't know God, and those are the Gentiles, and those who do not obey them. They had the law. The Gentiles did not have the law. They had a law of sorts but it was not the law of God. They didn't have the law like the Jews had the law. They couldn't become Jews. They were Gentiles. They were separated. There are Gentiles in the second group, but it is predominantly, it's predominantly made of Jews because the Jews knew the law. And when the law of Christ came, when Christ came, they chose to not obey the law. They chose not to obey Christ. They chose to hang him on a tree. And they were the ones, they were the ones who knew the law, they had been exposed to the law, and they chose not to obey. It's two very clear groups of people. But to your point, there is reference made, so those who know not God, the pagan world or the Gentiles, and those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the Jews. But each of them, each group is mentioned as one of the others. So let's look at each one of those. So the Jews, let's look at John 8 and verse 55. John 8, verse 55. This is going to mention the Jews as those who know not God. John 8, verse 55. You do not understand him. This is Jesus talking. You do not understand him, but I know him. If I should say that I do not know him, then I wouldn't be like you. So very clearly here, the Jews are identified in this first camp. By and large, it represents the pagan world. The Gentile world. But in some sense, the Jews 
also did not know God because Christ says, if I should say that I do not know him, then I would be like you, a liar. But I understand him and keep his instructions. And so in, in, in a sense, the Jews can even be put into this verse category of not knowing God. They knew him, but they didn't know him from the standpoint of what he wanted uh, them to do. And likewise, obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go over to Romans 11.30, Romans 11.30, here he talks about the Jews or the Gentiles not obeying. So in verse 30, he says, you Gentiles once disobeyed God, but now during Israel's disobedience, you have received mercy in the same way as mercy was shown to you. The Israelites also now disobedient will receive mercy. And so he shows them that even though they knew about God, the Gentile world knew about God, they chose not to obey. So you can take each one of these groups and, and put them in both of the positions of, uh, of the other. And I think that's an important point. But more importantly, well, not more importantly, but, you know, let's take it into a modern sense now. He will punish those who do not know God. All right? He will punish those who don't know God. Can we know for certain, if we read our Bibles and we sit down and make a list, can we know for certain who was saved and who was unsaved as we read down through the Bible? Judas, for instance. Was Judas saved or unsaved? Was Judas, was he saved or unsaved? It is clear from John 17, 12 and Acts 1, 25 that he lied lost. But I can't say that about the preponderance of people in the Bible. Look at Solomon. Look at the life that Solomon lived. Did he die saved or unsaved? You can sit down and make a list. When God destroyed thousands of people in certain portions of the Bible where he talks about this, you know, when he destroyed thousands of people on various occasions among the Gentile nations, does that mean that every soul among them was lost? Go ahead. That's true. But the simple answer to the question is, and the answer is very simple, is we don't know. We don't know. I could sit down and make a list of all the Bible people, Cain, Abel, Adam, Eve, all those people. And I could, with my human mind, decide whether they're saved or lost. But it doesn't make a wit's worth of difference. I'm not God. It's not our job. It is not your job. So the pygmies in Africa, the people of the Kalahari Desert, who wander around, and are they going to be saved or are they going to be lost? It's not my job. That's right. And that's the, that's the next thing. So the first thing is we know there are some things that we know. Go ahead. Sure. Go ahead. We don't know. That's right. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah, the sovereign God has not appointed that as a task for us to do. That's not our work. What is our work? What is our work here on earth? What is our work here on earth? What are we supposed to be doing? Sharing the knowledge of God, getting and keeping ourselves ready. See, we're, we're so interested in, in, in thinking about the pygmies in Africa that we let our own salvation slip through, the, slip through the cracks because we're not ready. 
You know, I know a lot of I know a lot of people that I work with that are that are not Christians, that are not members of the church. My obligation is simply to talk to them about that. If they don't want to hear about it, I've done all I can do. It is not my job to judge them. Thank goodness. But there are several things that we can know about God's judgment, and we, we find those in the Bible. And to Mike's point, you know, even those people who are living in the furthest reaches who may not have access to God, the Bible says that the things in nature reveal themselves, that there is a time, there is a periodicity to nature that ought to suggest to you that there is someone that is higher, that is someone who is controlling the world. The, the, the sun rises at a, at a certain time. We, we know when the sun is going to rise. We know when the sun's going to set. We know the seasons as they change. You know, winter does not come before the winter does not come every year uh, right after summer. There's a period that's there's a period of uh, there's a periodicity of the seasons that happens in a regular there's a regular arrangement to all of this that speaks to a creator. For creation to be as orderly as it is speaks to a creator. And all you have to do is stand in the, and look in the mirror at the intricacies of the human body, the eye, all of the functional parts of our body, how they're knit together, how they work as one. Why, does the, why, is, why is the body used in Scripture to represent the church? It's the body of Christ. And we're all a part of that. Now, some people say, okay, well, I'm just a cell, or I'm a little toe, or I'm a toenail, or I'm whatever. Well, you're a part of the body. Not all of us can be the brain. Not all of us can be the heart. Not all of us can be, you know, some of us just have to be a cell. But we're all part of the body. And so there are intricacies in nature that we see that suggest. But beyond that, there are things that we can know about the, these things that don't give us answers, but they, they give us assurance. And one of those things is that we know that God's judgments are always going to be righteous. That's the first thing. Shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? You know, Abraham, Abraham recognized that back in Genesis. The Lord's standard of judgment is a righteous judgment. He talks about, he talks about vengeance here. He talks about... <clears throat> Uh, with he will uh, he taking vengeance. Some of your versions say. I think mine says he will punish, but he will take vengeance on those who know not God. All right. So we look at vengeance. What does vengeance mean to you? What is vengeance? If you say if you say I'm going to take vengeance on so and so, what 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 are you implying? Huh? Okay, you're going to penalize him. You're going to take revenge. But we're talking about we're talking about men. What will men do? What, what's a what's a human definition of vengeance? I'm going to get I'm going to get even with you. I'm going to take out my pound of flesh. I'm going to do something to you because you did something to me. That's not God's vengeance. That's human vengeance, and it needs to be very clearly delineated. Human vengeance needs to be very clearly delineated from God's vengeance. He will judge the world. With a righteous with a righteous standard, Psalm ninety six thirteen, Acts seventeen thirty one. If you jump off a building and you expect God to save you, you jump off a thirty story building and you expect God to save you, that's not going to happen. And you can go to Acts ten thirty four and find out why. God is no respecter of persons. 
He's not going to stop. He's not going to suspend gravity just to save your life. Okay? He's not a respecter of persons. And so we need to understand that. We need to understand that his judgment is righteous and that even those who are going to be lost cannot quibble with God about their state in the judgment. They will acknowledge his sovereignty and his justice. We're told that in Romans 14, 11. And the ungodly will be convicted of their rebellious ways as they've lived, Jude 15. So there's a righteous judgment component in God's judgment. He's not vengeance. He's not vengeful as we consider vengeance in a human sense. So the second thing is, besides a righteous judgment, judgment's certain. And Neil talked about that, and we've covered that. Uh, you know, we've covered that more. more. No firmer historical anchor exists than what Paul said in Acts 17, 21, that he's appointed a day. There's going to be a day when he's going to judge the world. And it's going to be certain. It's certain that there's going to be judgment. There's going to be judgment. The third thing is, besides a righteous judgment and a certain judgment, there's going to be a dread, it's a dreadful judgment. Paul says this back in First Second Thessalonians. He says it right here. He says, you know, to those who are afflicted, rest with us. He talks about Christ returning with the angels in flaming fire. Why are the angels returning with him? You ever thought about that? Why is Christ just not coming back? Why is he coming back with the whole panoply, with the whole panoply of angels? What are angels? What are the angels? They're what? They're servants of God. They're servants of God. They're messengers of God. And they are sometimes representative of, sometimes his representatives. But they're also the ones who will cast people into eternal fire. They're also the ones. You read about angels, you read about they have very, they have very specific duties. And one of those duties is they're going to be... They're, they're God's helpers. They are, they are the ones that come with God as he meets out judgment. Dwight? In 1 Peter 4, right after the, uh, right before uh, he talked about what he talked about in the sermon this morning, 1 Peter 4, 17, Paul asked a very probing question. He's, or Peter asked a very probing question. What shall be the end of them who obey not the gospel of God? It's a, it's a rhetorical question that he asked because he didn't appear to leave the question open to just idle speculation. So, a righteous judgment, a certain judgment, a dreadful judgment based on this scripture that we've got in 2 Thessalonians. But one thing is, is perfectly clear from reading this. No one can count on ignorance to save them. No one can count on ignorance to save them. Because Paul said when he talked to the people in Athens who worshipped in ignorance, though perhaps they were sincere in their ignorance, the times of ignorance therefore got overlooked. So those times of ignorance are done. But now he commands men everywhere that they should repent. All, everywhere, little wiggle room. Little wiggle room. So, it is the case, if it is the case that those who have never heard the gospel will be saved in their sinful condition simply because they do not know the truth, it would be better to leave, would it not be better to leave them in that state of ignorance? Because if they are exposed to the truth and then they reject it, there's little controversy as to what fate will await them. In discussing Romans 1 verses 18 through 22, um, it said, we deceive ourselves if we hold out false hope for the unevangelized based on their non-hearing of the gospel. And that's from Jack Cottrell. It is a difficult issue. 
that we need to leave in the hands of a wise and benevolent God. We don't have enough knowledge through our fog of limited information, nor are we righteous enough to presume that we say what should be the case. So often we tend to err on the side of human weakness. God's mind is not our mind. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And with respect to the parable of the tares, if there's one lesson that the Bible students should learn from that parable, it is this, that we as fallible folks are not qualified to do that final separation. We're not qualified to do that. We must leave that to God. We must also avoid meaningless speculation that puts the Lord in an unflattering light to those who we're trying to teach. Right. We are not the one who separates the, the tares, the wheat from the chaff. So, um, what does this mean? This means that God will judge. He will punish those who do not know God, and he will punish those who obey not the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. These two groups of people will suffer, will suffer verse 9, they will suffer eternal ruin and exclusion from the face of God and from the splendor of his might. As someone said last week after the class, we talked about the fact that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. If we don't walk in the light, we can only expect darkness now and eternally. So as we maintain our preparedness, our watchfulness for his second coming, whenever that may be, we must continue to walk in the light. If we are caught at the end walking in darkness, darkness is the only thing that awaits us. Eternal ruin Exclusion from the face of God and from the splendor of his might. He will come to be honored among his saints and to be admired in that day by all who have believed. Our testimony to you was believed. So what's going to happen in the judgment day? Vindication for the saints. All of those saints in Revelation who are under the throne, who've cried out so long for vengeance, God will give vengeance, his style of vengeance, righteous vengeance. It is not for us to determine. It is, us to, it, is, it is incumbent upon us to be prepared and to prepare as many others as we can for that day. That is, our, that is our job as Christians. That is our job. That is our vocation. Our avocation is what we do to earn money. Our vocation should always be that of a Christian. That's our job. Our job is to be his hands and his feet in this world. We pray this for you always. Verse 11. Was that the bell? That's the second bell? I know I heard the first one. Okay. <clears throat> we pray this for you always, that our God may count you worthy of his calling. That's the second bell. All right, we'll pick up at verse 11 next week. Good Lord willing. Thank you.